opioids, concussions, obesity, climate change. American corporations have long had a financial stake in undermining scientific consensus. In The Triumph of Doubt, David Michaels details how corrupt science becomes public policy and where it's happening today. Join Harper's Magazine in conversation with Michaels on February 5th, 7 p.m. at West 83rd Redeemer in New York. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. As is true of the rest of Latin America, Catholicism was crucial to Brazil's colonization and development. The country's foundational myth, the equivalent of the first Thanksgiving in the United States, is La Primera Misa, or the First Mass. On April 26, 1500, a thousand Portuguese explorers erected a cross on the sands of Corona Roja Beach in Bahia, as several hundred indigenous people looked on. Portuguese kneeled before the cross during the mass to demonstrate their respect, which some of the onlookers mimicked, and this was taken as a sign it would be easy to convert the native population. It's perhaps unsurprising that Brazil, which has nearly two-thirds the population of the United States, has the world's largest Catholic population. But Brazil also has the second largest evangelical population. As in the United States, evangelicals have become a significant political force over the past 30 years. One in three members of Brazil's Congress is evangelical, and their support for Jair Bolsonaro propelled him to the presidency. The impact of evangelicalism is also evident in the country's favelas, and even their gangs. In the February issue of Harper's Magazine, Alex Quadros shadows Demetrios Martins, an ex-gang member turned Pentecostal pastor in Rio de Janeiro, who is engaged in a war for gang members' souls, some of whom both attend services and commit heinous acts of violence. I spoke to Quadros about the tension between these seemingly contradictory forces within the favelas and how the simultaneous growth of gang violence and evangelicalism reflects larger social issues at work in Brazilian society. Favelas have been an integral part of the international imaginary about Brazil, largely thanks to uh, the film City of God. And in Brazil, there's even been sort of a cycle of films that, you know, riff on this idea of the favela as like this lawless, violent hellhole. However, the the formation of favelas and the significant increase in police killings there over the past, basically since Bolsonaro has been in power, says a lot about the country's history and its racial divide. Could you discuss how they were, how they came to be? Yeah. So I actually think City of God was was a great movie. And um, it was based on a book by a guy named Paulo Lins, who is from the city of God favela. It's almost in a way, a book of reportage or, or memoir about this place. That said, I, I do think it contributed to a kind of romanticized idea outside of Brazil of what happens in the favela. You know, it's kind of a sultry, colorful place where uh, violence is, you know, part of everyday life. And there are elements of truth to that, but obviously it's, it's also kind of a simplification. And uh, most of the people who live there 
we're talking about, I think the population in favelas in Brazil now is something like 10 or 20 uh, million people. Uh, and most of them are just ordinary working class people, you know, who go to work every day and don't and aren't involved in gangs and so on. But uh, they are also incredibly violent places where even working class people are uh, risk uh, getting hit by stray bullets or getting caught by confrontations between gangs and the police. And the way that favelas formed tells you a lot about the really important divides in Brazilian society. So they began to form at the beginning of the 20th century. And the very first favela was actually formed by soldiers who were returning from a campaign to put down this millenarian uprising. And they came back to Rio, they were promised land by the government, but they never got it. So they set, set up tents on a hill along with former slaves and uh, the descendants of slaves. And the hill became known as Favela Hill because they took part in a, a famous battle at a mountain called Favela Mountain. And Favela is the name of a bush, kind of spiny bush that was on this mountain. But favelas form in Rio and in other cities after slavery was abolished toward the end of the 19th century because there was a huge migration of former slaves from the countryside to cities like Rio and Sao Paulo. And they basically set up camp wherever there was empty space in the city. And in Rio, Rio has a really unique, spectacularly beautiful geography of steep hills rising from flat, low-lying areas next to the beach. And most of these favelas formed on uh, steep hills where it would have been too precarious to set up a proper infrastructure and a proper city. But so their origin was as heavily Afro-Brazilian areas that were built kind of outside of the purview of the state and the regular infrastructure of cities. Um, but also really vibrant places, partly because of that, because of that legacy of Afro-Brazilian culture, it's also where Samba was born and the birthplace of what we now understand carnival to be in Brazil, this kind of mm. wild party that lasts for days. One thing that would be nice to hear you talk about is how that geographical divide, particularly with something like the whitening policies of the 1940s, how official government policy was also kind of keeping people at the margins in favelas. Right. So the whitening policy, I think, mainly refers to immigration policies of the late 19th century and to some extent the early 20th century, when basically the people in power in Brazil noticed that their country was very heavily black and the elites tended to be of European descent. Mm -hmm. And they uh, were very much enamored of 
Darwinian ideas about race uh, that were popular at that time and had this idea that they could whiten the population of Brazil by bringing in immigrants from Europe. So they subsidized a lot of immigration from countries like Italy. Uh, Sao Paulo has the largest population of people of Italian descent in the world outside of Italy, of course. Mm. Um, meanwhile, they completely abandoned, the government completely abandoned people living in favelas who were largely of uh, African descent. So the favelas from their formation and for most of the 20th century were basically completely abandoned by the government. And it's only in recent decades and especially since the 1980s that there's been any kind of attempt by the government to integrate these areas into the rest of the city with proper public services, sewage, electricity, Mm-hmm. Um, garbage pickup and so on. Right. And Brazil has seen a massive growth in evangelicalism in the last few decades. And now it is, it is the second largest evangelical population in the world after the United States. So what do you think are the main factors uh, for that sudden increase? Probably the most important factor is that Brazil has been... Um, for most of its history, a country with uh, a very small elite and a massive population of very poor people. And evangelicals, when they started proselytizing in Brazil, were very effective at giving people the idea that there was a chance for changing their lives in the present, whether through miracle cures through the power of the Holy Spirit, or through tithing and getting a return on that investment in the form of money, basically the prosperity gospel, uh, which is something that became really popular in Brazil in the second half of the 20th century. And in the favelas in particular, the uh, evangelical churches, you know, there's no central authority. For the most part, they're founded by Ordinary people, some of them, you know, maybe even not that familiar with the Bible, but they're often people from the neighborhood that they're preaching in, and they can set up a little storefront church. And there are, if you go to any poor neighborhood in the country, it's just amazing how many evangelical churches you see. I mean, it it can seem like it's on every block in a favela or in a a low-income neighborhood. So evangelical churches started springing up in places where there just was no Catholic church. And the Catholic church, because of its centralized top-down structure, just didn't have the ability to respond to these massive social and demographic changes that were happening in Brazil in the 20th century. Another thing is that even though Brazil has this image as being, and this goes back to the film Study of God, or to Black Orpheus, which is a movie that came out in the 50s, on the Oscar in the 50s. This image of Brazil as, you know, a kind of sultry, libidinous place where it's carnival all the time and everyone knows how to play soccer. Um, <laughs> you know, there's an element of truth to that, but there's also a really strong strain of 
social conservatism in Brazil. Evangelical churches, they had a few different messages that really resonated with a population that is largely poor or working class and striving and socially conservative. And obviously the evangelicals in the United States have had a significant impact in terms of politics. How has that played out in Brazil? Because, you know, during the military dictatorship, and maybe this goes back to what you were saying about that conservatism, the evangelical model in Brazil was believers don't mess with politics. Right. Well, in the military dictatorship, which was 1964 to 1985, there just weren't enough evangelicals, even if they did want to mess with politics, there wouldn't have been enough of them to really move the needle. In 1980, and this, I think, really shows the scale of the transformation that's happened just in the last generation. In 1980, uh, there were fewer than 10 million evangelicals in Brazil, and it was a very small proportion of the population. Today, the population of Brazil is 200 million, and nearly a third of the country identified as evangelical now. And this is just in the last 20 years or so, evangelicals have started to become a real force in politics. And I mentioned this number in the piece, but one in three seats in Congress now belong to the evangelical caucus. And basically, this means that everyone in politics in Brazil has to negotiate with the evangelicals and has to keep them happy to some extent. And, and so Brazil is a country where abortion is still illegal. And this is a recurring issue in presidential campaigns. And even the candidates on the left, such as Dilma Rousseff, who was president from 2011 until 2016, she, uh, during the 2010 campaign, had to kind of pander to the evangelical population and really tone down or kind of lie about her position on abortion in order to appease them. Where they throw their weight around is on social issues. And because there's such a force in Congress, it means that it's very unlikely for major progress on some of these social issues to happen. Another example is LGBT rights. There was a lot of fake news around this during the campaign to elect Bolsonaro. There was a lot of fake news going around, and he he helped to spread this, that the Workers' Party, which was the left-wing party of Lula and Dilma, uh, was trying to indoctrinate children with something they called the gay kit. And the allegation was that they were spreading didactic materials to basically teach kids how to be gay and, you know, teaching them that it's good for boys to kiss boys and girls to kiss girls and so on, which was not at all true, but really resonated with people. And when I was in Brazil in 2018, during the election campaign, it was something that was repeated endlessly. And I was actually reporting this story. A part of my time there was before the election, and a part of my time there was after the election. But it was 
one of the most common reasons I heard from evangelicals in their reasoning for supporting Bolsonaro was this alleged gay kid and this idea that the left was going to indoctrinate their children to abandon traditional gender roles. Interestingly, now one of the main television stations, Record, or Record, as it's pronounced in Brazilian Portuguese, is owned by an evangelical pastor turned billionaire. And, and so this too really served to shift the debate on social issues and the channel has become a major ally of Bolsonaro. There's also been a lot of um, fake news on this front with um, WhatsApp messages being like the primary way by which, you know, oh, they want to give babies penis-shaped pacifiers and that spreads from one person to another person to another person. So it's not just stuff on television and it's not just stuff on you know, Facebook or whatever, it's this like person to person kind of communication of this misinformation. And again, really playing on that conservatism that's inherent to the country. I, I wanted to go back and talk about towards the beginning of the piece you write, I hope to reconcile two competing narratives of the evangelical church's role in the favelas. Could you describe those two narratives for listeners? And do you feel that you were ultimately able to reconcile them? One really common narrative that you hear about the role of evangelical churches in the favelas, and this is the narrative that is popular on the left, is that basically all of the pastors are there to kind of cynically exploit the desperation of the largely impoverished inhabitants of the favela. And it's a narrative with more than a grain of truth to it, because there have been countless cases of pastors stealing from the faithful, um, but also cases of pastors being caught transporting weapons for gangs. And there's a pastor who I mentioned in the piece named Marcos Pereira, who is probably the prime example of this tendency. He's someone who has been accused by prosecutors of laundering drug money as tithes to his church. And very mysteriously, even though he largely ministers in favelas and very poor areas, started driving around fancy vintage cars and his church came to hold the title to a fancy, something like a $2.5 million apartment on Copacabana Beach uh, in Rio. And far more sordidly, uh, the same pastor, Marcos Pereira, was convicted uh, several years ago of raping uh, girls and young women who attended his church. And he actually went to prison for that. But, and I'm getting a little bit off track here, but I think this is an important point to make about uh, the power of the evangelical movement in Brazil. After he was sent to prison, some members of the evangelical caucus in Brasilia, the nation's capital, uh, including Bolsonaro, who was then a congressman uh, and who had become president, 
lobbied for him to be released from prison, basically arguing that he was the victim of a campaign of religious persecution. Mm-hmm. And less than a year and a half after he was sent to prison, a Supreme Court justice decided that he should be released on the kind of technicality. And, you know, it's not clear if that is the direct result of the Evangelical Caucus lobbying, but the Supreme Court in Brazil has a record of being pretty responsive to the political winds. So that is one idea about evangelical churches in the favelas. The other narrative is about gang members finding redemption through the word of God, finding Jesus and being able to quit their gangs. And the fact is that evangelical churches in the favelas fill in often for an absentee state. So then observing a lot of different important roles in these places. For a lot of people, it's one of the only safe public places that they can gather and find community. For gang members, it's often the only safe way to leave their gang. And as gangs have started to adopt evangelical Christianity, uh, this is like the only the only way you can quit the gang and and your former pals in the gang or your former rivals in other gangs will not kill you. So I you know I'll I will leave it to readers to decide if I was successful in reconciling those, but I hope that I was able to show that these ideas can coexist in tension with each other. You know I think that there are of course some cynical actors in the evangelical movement who are just looking for wealth and power. But I also think that most of the pastors working in the favelas are sincere in their beliefs, albeit uh, at times misguided in their approach to proselytizing. Um, And this is something I get into the piece where the pastors in the favelas, in their outreach to gangs, are taking a really kind of pragmatic approach to spreading the gospel where they don't want to alienate people in the drug gangs who are already the targets of the police, who are already kind of pariahs from normal society. But at the same time, some pastors end up possibly crossing the line from outreach into pandering to gang members, possibly even implicitly sanctioning the gang members' activities. Right. Um, or and participation. And not always intentional. Right. Or participation. But even without a kind of direct participation by the pastors in gang activities, so, so something that's become really common in the favelas is for pastors to go to the drug distribution points and distribute blessings to the gang members who are dealing drugs there. And their hope is that, you know, they'll kind of break through to the gang members and persuade them to start attending church and eventually quit their gang. But many gang members end up seeing this as a, you know, kind of divine sanction 
for their illegal and often violent activities. Right. I mean, all societies sort of have these implicit contradictions um, and sort of find ways in which to have these things that should be opposed to each other coexisting and working together. And you talk about Candomblé, which is a syncretic Afro-Brazilian religion that basically takes the saints of Catholicism and uh, finds their complementary uh, god from Yoruban religions. And Candomblé and Umbamba, which is another form of this, uh, a different type of syncretic religion, their forms of worship have been under attack by evangelicals. And when I say under attack, I mean literally destroying their property, threatening people and you and or evicting them from their homes. I guess how do you feel that the ethos of of these drug gangs and evangelicalism do you feel like that is where that desire to kind of evict and take, you know, I mean it's taking territory, right? It's a form of clearing out the opposing gang this in this case Condomble and taking their turf like do you do you see that relationship that way or is something else at work here yeah good question so yeah i interviewed one woman who is a practitioner of Condomble um, afro-brazilian syncretic religion who was telling me stories about some of her disciples who had been expelled from a neighborhood that was recently taken over by a gang with a particularly strong and fanatical adoption of evangelical Christianity. When the gang moved in, men went door to door distributing a letter basically saying, we're now forbidding these Afro-Brazilian religions in the favela. You're not allowed to wear all white, uh, which is... um, what uh, Afro-Brazilian practitioners uh, wear uh, traditionally or during their rituals. They even banned hanging up their all-white clothes to dry in their, on their rooftops, uh, things like this. Uh, and those who disobeyed were run out of town. Um, and there have been cases, many cases, of practitioners of these Afro-Brazilian religions being murdered for their beliefs by gang members. And there's definitely a parcel of responsibility that belongs to pastors because one recurring theme in their sermons is that these Afro-Brazilian religions are something of the devil and they'll carry out exorcisms where the demons that they're exercising have uh, the names of deities that are worshipped in Candomblé or Umbanda uh, or any number of other Brazilian faiths. And it's not hard to imagine how a gang member who is used to operating in uh, a world where you solve your problems with violence and where you're constantly warring with other gangs and with the police to hear this rhetoric and interpret it as a call to holy war. And 
there were times hearing these stories about what's happening in the favelas where it almost sounded like when ISIS would move in to, you know, a city in Iraq, for example. Hmm. So, again, there are pastors who respect these other religions. The pastor at the center of my story, who I spend most of my time following around, uh, Demetrio Martins, he told me that he does not agree with these attacks on Afro-Brazilian temples, but he himself does use this language of calling these religions witchcraft. So there is some parcel of responsibility there. Absolutely. So, you know, discussing this relationship, do you think that the politics of evangelicalism have also had a hand in the escalation of gang violence in Brazil or just the conditions that allow for the creation of gangs? I don't think that evangelical Christianity has provoked more gang violence, you know, except in the case of these, these cases of direct religious persecution. I think the most important factors in the spiral of violence in Brazil is, number one, the drug war mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that these gangs, the whole reason they exist is that drugs are criminalized and they can make money and buy heavy weaponry by selling them. The other big problem is prisons that are overloaded way past capacity. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people in Brazil who are in prison awaiting trial. And they can wait for six months, a year. And maybe, they're, maybe they go to jail for a low-level crime or they, they aren't yet associated with a gang. But because prisons in Brazil have become completely dominated by gangs, many small-time criminals or independent, if you will, criminals go in uh, to prison and come out affiliated with a gang. Right. Um, and... The other major reason for the spiral of violence is that the gangs have fragmented over time. Uh, So in Sao Paulo, uh, which is Brazil's biggest city, there's basically just one gang that controls the drug trade uh, in that city. And Sao Paulo has one of the lowest homicide rates in the country. It's actually lower than Washington, D.C., Um, Rio has many different gangs that fight each other and the homicide rate is much higher. Now that said, it also doesn't seem that the rise of evangelical Christianity has prevented the spiral of violence in Brazil. So for all of the talk of evangelical churches being the only way for gang members to find redemption, it seems that for every gang member who finds Jesus and quits the gang, there's another uh, who's willing to replace him. For all that evangelical pastors are trying to persuade people to leave their lives of violence and drugs and crime, the gangs and 
evangelical Christianity have oddly kind of been growing in tandem with each other. I would love to know about sort of the flip side of this. And you actually published a book in 2016 called Brazilianaires, which is about the super wealthy and the growth of Brazil's extreme income inequality. Can you talk about the years you spent there reporting it? What attracted you to those stories? And then maybe also touch on how evangelicalism has shaped the lives of the extremely wealthy, aside from, you know, politicians, let's say, exerting their influence. Yeah. I, I came to the story about the ultra-rich in Brazil really by accident. Um, I was working for Bloomberg in Sao Paulo, covering the stock market, and Bloomberg decided to create a team of journalists that would cover the world's billionaires. And they asked me to be the person uh, who would cover the billionaires of Latin America. Uh, so I really stumbled on this topic, but it ended up seeming like a really unique window on Brazil as a country and how power works there and gave me a kind of rare window on the brutal inequality there because you know, I think there's rightly a lot has been written about the poor in Brazil, but um, not much had been written about the super wealthy. Uh, so I basically spent my days investigating the lives of the ultra-rich, occasionally visiting their homes, interviewing them. And actually, I came to the subject of the rise of evangelical Christianity in Brazil through my work on billionaires. One of the billionaires I profiled was a guy named Egid Macedo, who I mentioned earlier is the um, is an evangelical pastor who became a billionaire by siphoning off his followers' donations and used that money to take over a TV network and build a media empire. But outside of him, I can't think of any other Brazilian billionaire who's evangelical, partly because Evangelical Christianity, really, in Brazil, it's, it's really um, the religion of the poor. Uh, and the kind of traditional elite is much more traditionally, culturally default Catholic way. And so Evangelical Christianity, it's, it's not something you're going to see much of among bankers in Brazil. Thanks, Alex. My pleasure. Thanks to you. And now I'm going to have a quick conversation with editor Christopher Beha about the February issue. Okay, so um, I don't know if you heard about this, but Trump's been in the news. Yes. And there's a cover story, Trumpism after Trump. What's that all about? So it is seeming, it is starting to seem, unfortunately, unlikely 
that um, Trump is going to be removed from office by mm. the Republican Senate. Okay. Um, however, it is still possible that he will be voted out of office later this year. And uh, he is uh, sadly, in any case, going to die at some point. Yes. Um, and the, the question that uh, Thomas Meany is setting out to answer is, will the end of Trump, whenever that happens and in whatever fashion, mean the end of Trumpism? That is to say, is there an actual political movement here beyond the impulsive policy swerves of a insane person and if there is such a movement what chance does it have of being an enduring feature of american political life right he's exploring whether this is uh an aberration or here to stay yes and i should say that the the way he goes about answering this question is attending the National Conservatism Conference, which was held last year in, in Washington, D.C. National conservatism is a term that some of the people who are trying to create an intellectual edifice for Trumpism have used to describe the movement. It's um, There's a little bit of Steve Bannon to it, a little bit of Tucker Carlson. It is... Um, nationalist, uh, of course, although not white nationalist, they insist, um, <laughs> but also has some interesting features like, um, in theory, it seems like a conservatism that is anti-corporatist, um, anti-having trade policies that are dictated by the interests of banks and the wealthy, anti-interventionist um, foreign policy. At the time uh, that the conference took place, John Bolton was still national security advisor, and uh, he appeared and did not exactly get a warm welcome. Uh, it, it, most of the people in the room want uh, American troops to be brought home. So it is not as though there is there is nothing uh, to be admired about uh, national conservatism. One of the curious features about Trump is that he, he doesn't seem able to f fulfill those few promises he makes yes. that would actually be a good thing. So as we see on his pose uh, with uh, Iran, you know, he probably is more of a Boltonite than he is a Bannonite. Right. And there's, I spoke with Thomas Meany in the previous episode, so if that's not, if that wets your whistle, go listen to that. Um, and there's a new Easy Chair columnist. That is right. And uh, what is, for just people who aren't familiar with the Easy Chair format, very mysterious sounding, What what is it? The Easy Chair is our front of the book column. Uh, every issue starts with a short column by a regular columnist. Um, for a long time, uh, this column space was called The Notebook, and it was the uh, monthly column that Lewis Lapham wrote. But it was previous to that, The Easy Chair, going back uh, more than 100 years. Um, so it is a long-standing feature of the magazine. We currently have alternating columnists. One of them is Kevin Baker, and starting this month, the other will be Thomas Chatterton Williams. So he'll be writing the Easy Chair column every other month uh, for the foreseeable future, and we're very happy to have him. And this one is interesting because he he does something that he even says he shouldn't do, which is respond to a pan, but he uses it as a jumping-off point. 
So can you give a little context to that? Sure. So Thomas has a new book out that's called Portrait in Black and White that uses his own personal story and his family to provide what I would call a a, a dissenting opinion on a lot of uh, contemporary views about race. He has been praised in many outlets for this, and he's uh, taken some flack in others, as is to be expected whenever you wade in on a controversial subject. Um, but uh, one critic in particular, Toby Hazlitt, writing in Book Forum, um, criticized uh, the very fact uh, that one would have a, a, a view on one subject that was not consistent with your ideological uh, outlook on other subjects. And he included Thomas in a what would be familiar to listeners, uh, you know, list of names of uh, people who are generally people of the left while also dissenting from one or another uh, orthodoxy of the left. And he called these people the, the new incoherence. Without responding to the particular criticisms of his book, Thomas was interested in this idea that it is fundamentally incoherent to have a a set of views that can't all be placed on the same part of the ideological spectrum. Um, Thomas uh, lives in Paris, and one of the things that he brings is... um, a, a viewpoint uh, from outside of, he is uh, American, but uh, from outside of the American political context. And one of the things he notes um, is that in European countries that are built out of coalitions, there, 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 there is no assumption that a view on, for example, trade or um, economics in general should line up naturally with your view on gay marriage or your view on abortion there's there there are things that we in america think of as belonging to the right and belonging to the left uh but when you take things that uh do not have um, an inherent sort of logical connection to each other and say you have to subscribe to this menu or that menu, um, then that's obviously, that's ideological thinking. That's not logical thinking. Um, and, and, and sort of tellingly, uh, uh, the thing that uh, has a contrast to incoherence is not coherence, but adherence. Um, so uh, th- those are the issues that... Um, that Thomas is exploring in the column, um, and it just happens to be that he is doing them by way of responding to a <laughs> negative review of his own work. Sure, yeah. Oh, Toby Hazlitt, a writer who has written for Harper's. Yes, indeed. Personal pal. It is a fascinating easy chair. Um, what was sort of the shape you wanted to give the rest of the issue? With, well, st- with that is like the easy chair is like the starting. The easy chair is the is the starting. It is our it is our our welcome to the issue. The appetizer. Um, <laughs> we have a really beautiful essay by the poet Christian Wyman called the Cancer Chair. Chris is, as I said, a, a poet, an excellent poet, um, who has uh, written in the past um, about uh, his ongoing uh, treatments for cancer. Um, But uh, in this case, it is um, 
a, a the essay is structured around in a very nuts and bolts way the process of going in for a session of chemotherapy and the things that he thinks about while he's going through the process um, and particularly the subject of suffering and the question of whether or not suffering has meaning um, uh, whether suffering is something that um, we could or ought to banish from the world or whether it is part of what orders human life so it's not light reading mm. but uh, it's a really beautiful piece of work and um, we're very proud to be publishing it we also have veering in a slightly different direction a, an annotation by Jake Biddle about Amazon's plans for um, for unmanned drone delivery. They have filed uh, patents and also paperwork with the FAA about using drones uh, for the last miles of their delivery. Um, and it really is, uh, I know people uh, are alarmist about Amazon, but it really is dystopian. We're talking about they would have landing places on church steeples. Um, and uh, I mean, if you live in a city like New York and you see the piles of, uh, of packages that UPS drivers have outside of every building in the city and how many packages are getting delivered every day now you imagine those being delivered with drones that are uh, filling the sky and blocking out the sun or just the human toll where it's like all of those jobs at UPS and, are gone or the post too. office or yeah. all this yeah so not so, cool Amazon <laughs> What else is in there? <laughs> and we have a great piece by Jennifer Percy reporting from Lusk, Wyoming, about an annual reenactment uh, that Lusk has of a supposed event that probably never happened in which um, local Sioux skinned a white man alive. This skinning is, is reenacted by an entirely white uh, population of Lusk, many of them in red face. And Wait. So what's what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> so the, and and you know they're what they would tell you is yeah, but the the, the Indians win. They're right. the ones. They're the ones who skin the guy. Um, they don't think there's a problem. Needless to say, and right. and and uh, they think they're 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 celebrating a, a moment in history. There's no context uh, about the Indian Wars in, in which the collision between uh, white settlers and indigenous people in that area happened. And Jen also visited the Sioux at the nearby reservation who the, 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 the population of Lusk says, well, we have to do perform it in red face because there are no Indians around to perform the Indian parts. Mm -hmm. um, uh, needless to say, the local Sioux have not been invited to play those roles um, and they would not uh, right. come if they were. So Jen explores the history uh, of red face in America. She notes, which was very striking to me because I certainly did it as a child, that almost every uh, American grew up a, at one point or another playing cowboys and Indians, and what that what that means in reality, what 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 those wars were about, mm -hmm. uh, and and what the implications are of white Americans, you know, turning that into uh, children's games now, and. We have a very good short story by Stephen O'Connor that is about a, a young man in interwar Vienna and his relationship with Sigmund Freud. 
and we have um and i i hesitate to bring this up in this forum but we have a critique <laughs> of podcast oh he's gonna be on by hugh aiken yeah um and uh well if hugh is gonna be on i will leave it to him to <laughs> say more about that except that i know that no one gets tired of uh having shots taken at malcolm gladwell and i <laughs> can tell you that you will find at least a couple in hugh's piece sure all right well sounds like a great issue thank, thank you thank you You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 